Good morning. Um, I'm hungry. I don't know about you guys. So that um, it's amazing what what uh, your, your brain just kind of knows when it's twelve o'clock, except it's not twelve o'clock. But anyway, um, let's see. I have a big note at the top of my notes that says. No ums and no us, because I realize I have a terrible habit, so I'm trying to break it. So if I have awkward silences, you just know that it's my brain freaking out because I'm... Um... <laughs> All right, this is going to be... Uh, uh, now it's going to be awkward. Uh... Okay. Wow. If you want to open, what? I'll try to do that. If you want to open your Bible to Romans 5, that's where we're going to end up. We are going to take a little bit of a journey to get there. I've been reading, reading in the book of Romans. You know, Romans has, you know, Romans is an interesting book. It can feel complicated and maybe inaccessible to some degree. You know, you read through Romans and there's a lot of theological terminology and, and you know, it, how does it fit? What does it mean to me? How does this apply to me? And so I made a brief outline, just a really high level outline that kind of shows where I think the book of Romans positions and kind of what certain sections of the book of Romans mean. So you'll see in the, first, uh, in the first chapter, there's just a brief introduction, followed by Romans uh, 1, 18 to 3.20, where Paul, uh, Paul focuses on making sure that everybody is in the same position before God. Everyone is under sin. So Romans 1, 18 to 3.20. Romans 3.21 to 4, Paul saying that faith alone can bring righteousness. Only faith can bring righteousness. And then Romans 5, 1 to eight thirty nine, Paul is saying, listen, because of the righteousness that you have through Christ, you now have incredible hope. And it's a hope that's not just for eternal life. It's a hope that is for right now. So I thought that was, that helped, when I looked at it that way, that helps make the first eight chapters of Romans more accessible to me. Now that being said, there's a lot more to Romans than the first eight chapters, and after, the, after chapter eight, it gets a little complicated again, but I'm going to save that for somebody else to digest. Um, um, so Romans 1, 18 to 320, no one is righteous. Um, Paul, in Romans 1, 17, he has this phrase, which I think is a good thesis statement for the, for the entire book of Romans. He says, Romans 1, 17, he says, um, in it, so in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The ESV says from faith for faith. I think another translation of that is just beginning and ending in faith. So in the gospel of God, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that single verse kind of sets the tone or maybe the, the, the direction of the entire book of Romans. This is Paul's purpose in writing the book of Romans to show that the righteousness of, the righteousness of God comes beginning and ending with faith in, faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
so like I said, Romans one eighteen to three twenty, Paul is really his his purpose there is to show that uh, no one is righteous from good Gentiles to bad Jews to good Jews to bad Gentiles. Everyone alike needs Jesus. Romans was written to a very diverse group of people, um, both uh, both Jews and Gentiles, and so on the front end of this book, trying to make sure that everybody is. And that the, that the field is level, that everybody is in the same position. In fact, in Romans three, Romans three nine, he 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 says, um, both Jews and Greeks alike are under sin. That's Romans three nine. And I wanted to read this quick. I, I've mentioned this book, The Prodigal God, before. I thought I could just stand up here and read it today, and it'd probably be a pretty good sermon. But I decided that that'd probably be cheating. Um, so Romans nine. I'm sorry, Romans nine. Prodigal God, page nine. Um, says this, says, this is Tim Keller, he's saying, throughout the centuries, when this text, meaning the text of the prodigal son, when this text is taught in church or religious education programs, the almost exclusive focus has been on how the father freely receives his penitent younger son. The first time I heard the parable, I imagine Jesus' original listeners' eyes welling with tears as they heard how God will always love and welcome them no matter what they've done. We sentimentalize this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, if we do that. The targets of this story are not wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything that the Bible Jesus is not pleading, is not so much pleading with immoral outsiders, insiders. He wants to show them that their blindness, their narrowness, and their self-righteousness, and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. It is a mistake, then, to think that Jesus tells this story primarily to assure younger brothers of his unconditional love. No, the original listeners, the original listeners, were not melted into tears by the story. Rather, they were thunderstruck. They were offended and infuriated. Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts. It is to shatter our categories. Through this parable, Jesus challenges what nearly everyone has ever thought about God, sin, and salvation. His story reveals the, self, his story reveals the destructive self-centeredness of the younger brother, but it also condemns the elder brother's moralistic life in the strongest terms. Jesus is saying that both the irreligious and the religious are spiritually lost, both life paths are dead ends, and that every thought the human race has had about how to connect to God has been wrong. I think Paul would agree with that. That's what Paul is trying to do in Romans 1.18 to 3.20. He's shattering categories. I've always read the chapter, chapter 1 of Romans, and I've read that, and I thought, wow, there's some really rotten people in the world. And that's, you know, you read the last part of Romans 1, it's like, wow, that's, that is, those are, there's some terrible people. And the last time when I read the book of Romans, I realized Romans 1 isn't talking about those people. Romans 1 is talking about my human condition. Romans 1 is addressed to me. It's not addressed to those people. It's not up to me to find a class of people that Romans 1, Romans 1 was written to me. And if I want to class myself out of Romans 1, then I can just shut the book of Romans 
Because the rest of the book of Romans wasn't written for me either. So it's very important in my mind that, 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 that we need to shatter our categories, as Tim Keller says. We need to shatter our categories. We alike, we are all under sin. Greeks and Jews, Paul says, you're all alike under sin. And I promise we're going to get to Romans 5. Um, I'm just kind of building uh, a foundation so we have a need to find, our, to find a class of people. As humans, we have a need of, uh, uh, to find a class of people who is worse than we are so we don't feel so badly about ourselves. My wife was reading something that I think Richard Miller posted on Facebook about the same time I was reading this chapter of Romans, and it, and it kind of connected. He said something about, you know, do you look down on, on the people who, who shop at Walmart? I, I don't remember exactly what it said, but, you know, so we can find now all of a sudden we shop at Publix and you know, I'm not a Walmart shopper anymore. Um, so, so, but, and we can do the same thing as we read the first chapter of Romans. Oh, I, you know, I'm not a homosexual. I, I, that does not an adulterer. And so we can class ourselves out of the first chapter of Romans. Um, Jesus said this, he said, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I'm sorry, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the first three chapter of, chapters of Romans, Paul is making this point plain. He's saying Jesus did not die for people. He didn't die to people. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinner. Right? Or the broken. Anyway, you, you know what he said. Um, so, so before we jump into Romans 3.21 and find the righteousness of God through faith, we first have to realize that we need the righteousness of God through faith. So Romans 3.21 to the end of chapter 4, Paul is, is really building the argument that faith can only come, I'm sorry, righteousness can only come through faith. It doesn't come through keeping the law and it doesn't come through our works. So, and we, we all know that. We all know it's just part of our Christian lingo that righteousness is by faith. We, we know that. So the question I was asked as I read this and studied this is, but why? Why does faith make us righteous? We all know that righteousness is a product of faith, but why is that the case? Um, and, and are we sure that, um, you know, um, we, we know that, that it, it, it still matters how we live, but we just know that how we live doesn't make us righteous. So is it just a technicality? In other words, is this just semantics? Are we just, is this just the way that we describe it or explain it? Um, if the outcome is a life if the outcome of works or the outcome of faith are both a life that has righteous works, does it really matter? So that's the question I was trying to ask is, you know, why, why is it? Why is it that it needs to be 
a life that your life as a Christian needs to be predicated on a life of, on, on a uh, and, and an image came to me of when I was a kid. There was a church that that my parents went to um, that had a, a water fountain right at the corner of the church, and this water fountain was just a pipe coming up out of the ground, and there was a cup uh, hanging off a little peg beside the water fountain, and this water fountain never quit running. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, this water fountain would run. And the reason for that was is because the other end of the pipe went into a mountain spring. And that spring never dried up. I never saw that spring go dry. And I thought, you know, the elk, you know that could have been just hooked into a well somewhere. And, um, and, and it would have looked the same. Except the problem is the well would have run dry. And that's the difference between a life that's predicated or that's built on a response of faith. A response of faith to what Christ has done. And the good works that comes out of our life is like that spring that never runs dry. Because we're connected to a source that's not our own. But yes, we can produce some good works on our own. But then we're like, we're just kind of connected to the well. And it'll look the same for a period of time, but eventually it'll burn out. Because... We'll run dry. We weren't made to produce that on our own. So why does it take faith to become righteous? And, you know, I I thought about, um, you know, when a a child disobeys, that a a child's act of disobedience itself is, I think. In other words, there's nothing morally or ethically wrong about the child eating the forbidden cookie. The cookies are there could be eaten there's nothing morally or ethically wrong about the child eating the cookie instead it's the fact that the child's heart does not believe in the goodness of his father the child doubts his father's best intentions and therein perhaps lies the secret to why righteousness is not just abstinence from sin or and it's not just adherence to the law because these things can be done and still have no trust in the father's goodness Changing behavior does not change hearts. In fact, the word of rebellion is compliance. What God is saying through the prophets, repeated and, and other, other uh, 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 writers repeated, is, is God saying, let me change who you are. Let me give you a new nature. Summarizing Romans 3.21 to the end of chapter 4, I would say, is, is this. Righteousness is not the absence of sin. It's the presence of faith. And that's tough to wrap our heads around because I think for most of our life we're taught that unrighteousness is sin, and it is. Um, but what Paul says is it's not an... It's, anyway, I'm gonna, I don't need to elaborate. Righteousness is not the absence of sin. It is the presence of faith. You can think about that if you disagree you're welcome to say so. Um, I, that, that is not in the Bible. So that was my interpretation. Um, so Romans 5, 1. So I, was, I read the Romans chapter 5, and I realized there's a phrase in Romans 5 that comes up repeatedly. And it captured kind of my attention. And, I, and, and that's really the inspiration that I wanted to pass on today is a phrase in Romans 5, two words, much more. 
I, I was reading that phrase and I just realized the power that Paul is just, he is, he is full of, of, uh, of this inspiration that he wants to impart to, to, to his audience. And, and that, that, that while sin prevailed, grace has much more prevailed. So chapter, Romans 5, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 starts out, he says, therefore, and then when you read the word therefore, you kind of have to back up. Like, all right, what, what's, what are we talking about? So if we back up to chapter 4, verse 24, it says, it says, who raised, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up from our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by the faith in that same thing, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in suffering. We know that suffering produces endurance, and, produces, and endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Experience, so the King James actually uses a different word um, instead of, um, exp, uh, I'm sorry, um, instead of character, endurance producing character, King James says endurance produces experience. And I like that word experience better. I think, I, I kind of wrestle with it, like how does endurance produce character? I just, you know, and, and how does that produce hope? But when, when I looked at it as experience, when we can, when we have the, it, it, let me explain it this way. This is the reason, this experience thing is the reason that I might call DK and where God is at. He's not listening to me. And DK will respond with something like, don't worry, he's working. And that's what comes walking this out through, um, through, through suffering, producing endurance, and, produce, and endurance producing experience. That is DK's confidence that his hope in God isn't going to put him to shame. Does that make sense? It, the experience gives you this platform to say, I, I've seen God work in the past, and I know he's going to do it again. I have faith in what he's going to do. And, and Paul's saying that that hope that you have, is not got, you are not going to be put to shame in that. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Um, so what would it look like if our hope were to put us to shame? What would it look like if our hope puts us to shame? You know, it's interesting. We can hope for something for our, enti- for, for our entire life. And in a single instant, we can either have our hope fulfilled or have our hope put us to shame, right? Um, so my kids can hope they're going to get a milkshake. A single instant, they either know that they're going to get one or not because they haven't seen it yet. But he, at some point, we see and then our hope becomes reality. So can you imagine your life, living your life as a believer, looking forward to spending eternity with the Father, and one day you stand before him, and he looks at you long and hard. He sighs a little bit. Luke, I would love to let you, don't you remember those 17 sins, those 17 that you, did, you failed to properly confess can you imagine living your life with the expectation of eternal life and getting to it and missing it? Paul's saying your hope that you have in God 
is not going to be is not going to put you to shame. And he's saying that on the basis of the fact that he's already given you his Holy Spirit. Ephesians says it's like a down payment. He's already given you his Holy Spirit. And that's the confidence that you can have that when you when you stand before God, he's already given you his life. And you will not be put to shame. Um, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Um, it, and Paul's saying, frankly, it's ridiculous to, um, to, 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 be, to be afraid. He, he said, if God's love, what he says in the, in the rest of this chapter, he says, if God's love was big enough to bring us justification when we were living in sin, then how much more is God's love big enough to save life? We rejoice in this God who, though we deserved his wrath, gave us his life. Romans 5 begins with this statement of hope, um, that, that hope is going to lead to rejoicing and suffering, and it's going to, you know, this progression of endurance and experience and more hope. Hope's not going to be shattered because of the Holy Spirit. And then Romans 8 kind of closes out with, with another statement about hope, where Paul says, yes, it's true that, 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 um, that you have hope now and that you are suffering, but this suffering isn't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. You have hope, but it's because there's something so much bigger that's coming. He says it's not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. Um, he, Paul says the creation is groaning and we're groaning along with it under the futility of this corruption. And then Paul also says that the Holy Spirit is groaning right alongside of us with a groaning too deep for words. And, and Paul's saying that there's a hope that you have this right now, that you have right now where you sit for today, you have this hope. But he's saying you also have a hope for something that's far bigger than today. Does that make sense? So there's like a hope for now and there's a hope for eternity. And it's kind of, kind of sandwiched between um, um, all of this hope is, is Romans 8, Romans 6, Romans 5 all sandwiched between kind of with the, these bookends of hope on both sides. Um, so Paul's saying, don't get derailed. You've started a good faith. God's made you righteous, and you can be confident of that. But that's not the end of the road. That's not all there is to it. In the case of why we have hope, he says we have hope in salvation from God's anger against sin. That's uh, chapter 5, verse 5. He says we have hope in eternal life, chapter 5, verse 12. We have hope in freedom from slavery to sin. Uh, and we have hope that's beyond the law. You know, there's, there's a pandemic that's happening right now in the church. And I, 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 somehow I managed to find this nice little thing on the Internet. They're in abundance. Um, but there's a, there's a pandemic that's happening in the church and it's a pandemic of the sad, defeated. We try to fix this pandemic with a mask. Uh, let me cover it. Nobody will know who I am. Or we try to fix it with social distancing. I'm just going to stay away from you guys. I don't want you to know what, what I'm dealing with. Um, but for this virus, fortunately, we have a proven vaccine. And there's no trial and error that's needed. Um, let me ask you this. It is by grace that you are saved after all that you can do. What chapter 
and verse is that? Where is that? Any takers? Anna's, Anna's shaking, shaking her head. It is actually in Second Nephi 25-23, which is found in the Book of Mormon. That is an actual verse. It's just not in the Bible. By grace you are saved after all that you can do. And while we all know that that actually is not found in the words of Scripture... I think sometimes our lives can reflect that more than we want to admit. Um, Contrast that with what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, if death reigned through one man, then how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through Jesus Christ? The vaccine for the sad, defeated Christian harder. The vaccine for the sad, defeated Christian is to immerse yourself in the much more that God has for you. And, and now, let me just be clear that this message is not to condemn you if you happen to be sitting here today as a sad, defeated Christian. Um, I was there about two days ago, and I'll probably be there again sometime in my life. Sometimes I need somebody to come alongside of me and say, listen, there's hope here. There's a bigger picture. Um, the battle's been fought, and it's been won. Um, and so that's really what I'm trying to do today. So no matter where you're at, I want you to understand that as a believer sitting here, man, it's just the beginning of the journey. There's much more. Paul says, he says, He says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen, if while we were sinners, while we were enemies, God died for us, then how save us through his life? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 5.15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 5.17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There's a, message, there's a thread here that Paul doesn't want you to miss. Paul's saying, listen, you may have seen Satan operate in the past. You may, have, you may have seen the curse of sin up close like you never believed. But much more, where sin abounded, much more will grace abound. That is what uh, um, that is actually in 5, 5.21, 5.21, he says, as sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If God loved you enough to die for you, knowing full well the sin you would commit, knowing full well your unbelief, knowing full well your distrust in his goodness and provision, then how much more will he not, 
using other of Paul's words, will he not freely give you all things that pertain to life and godliness? This, uh, I already said that. Um, uh, Paul in 5.15 to 5 asked the gift of God to the curse of sin. He says, he says, if many died, then much more has, has, has grace abounded for many. He says, if judgment brought condemnation, the free gift brought justification. If death reigned, then much more will life reign through the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness. Um, while one trespass led to condemnation, Christ's one act of righteousness led to justification in life. Uh, through one man's disobedience, many became sinners. Also through one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Uh, though the law came to increase the sin, where sin increased, so grace increased even more so that sin doesn't get the final victory. Grace does. I love that. Um, I think... Uh, um, um, Nothing highlights to me more the, uh, uh, the beauty of grace than when I can contrast it to what Satan does. Satan comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And you read Romans 5, and it's just like, God just wants to come into your life and be a redeemer for you. That's what he wants to do. So wait. If sin increases, and grace does too, then let's just sin even more so that grace can abound even more. That's what Paul says in Romans 6.1. He asks the question. Uh, he says, all right, so this might be a natural, uh, a, a natural progression of everything I'm saying here. You might say, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. He says, and, and if you read through Romans 6, he says, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either you died with Christ or you didn't. You can't be a slave to two masters. Either, in, either you are enslaved to sin or you're surrendered to Christ. But you can't be both. The end of, the end of Romans wraps up with an appeal to people, an appeal to believers to let the grace of the to, to let the grace of God that you've experienced on the inside to let it show on the outside. That's kind of the last part of Romans. Is that he's saying he's saying I appeal to you therefore, in light of everything that we've gone through, in light of the fact that you've seen grace set you free from sin, you've experienced freedom from the law. He says I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. This is spiritual worship, he says. Don't be conformed to this world, but let your mind be transformed. And then by testing, you'll be able to discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then the rest of Romans 12, he just, he just goes and he lays out practical application for Christian, love, for Christian living. But as you read it, you'll see that it's all based on this foundation of righteousness by faith. That you're living this out. You're living out what God has done in your life. Um, so common self-help wisdom is this. Decide who you want to be and work at it. So what does it take to be a good person? Self-help wisdom. Decide who you want to be and then go to work at it. And there's nothing really inherently wrong with that. I think everybody needs to have some kind of a vision of this is the kind of person I want to be, and, 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 and there is some work. 
um, the question that came to me is, is the good person that I aspire to be, is that, is that vision that I have, of the, maybe even called to be, is that a vision that I can achieve without the power of the Holy Spirit? See, we have a huge gift in our possession, the gift of the transforming, redeeming love of a father. But it takes the Holy Spirit in me to let that flow out into the world. You know, I debated whether I should tell this story, and for some reason, I kind of go, I've kind of gone back and forth. But you know, last week I had a, a situation where somebody thought I owed them money, and it really made me mad, frankly. And my first PG thirteen thought was, "I'll see you in court. Let a judge decide." You know, I just I, I was just really upset. Um. I called my dad and I was ranting to him and he said, he said, Luke, you know, he said, um, you know, what's the proverb say? And I said, dad, I don't really want to hear any proverb right now. And then, you know, over time, just felt the Lord nudging me. Luke, it's all my money. You don't have to fight for it. You don't have to hold on to it. If he thinks you owe him money, just give it to him. Why, why do you need to be angry about that? And, I, you know, and so I was like, all right, Lord, fine. And so I sat down and wrote him a letter. And fortunately, it was a letter, not an email, so I didn't send it. Because, I, you know, I had to change that letter a few more times. What about that Philly just trying to show him that, you know, you're right and he's wrong? You know, you might be saying with your words that you're giving him the money, but... Um, you're really still trying to just be right. And I guess the reason I'm telling you that story is by the time I wrote my final revision of the letter, it was an invitation to coffee. And I say that not because I'm a saint, because actually what I discovered yesterday is that it was really hard to study for a sermon and be angry at the same time. And so I either had to choose either to not preach today or to be angry, and so I decided to quit being angry. Um, but I guess the reason I'm saying that is because of this. And that's, I feel like as Christians, we have that, we have that decision to make over and over through our lives. We have that decision, am I going to hang on to Luke or am I just going to surrender to Jesus? Well, and what's that going to look like for me? And, and, and we're going to have some opportunities to do that this week. Um, you know, this country is experiencing division and hatred like I've never seen in my life. But yet... We have this power in us to go out and be ambassadors of Christ. Just love it. Guess what? You can have my money. God's got more. I, I don't have to hang on to that. It's, you, oh, you want to get in my lane? Well, you just come on over into my lane. That's fine. I, I don't need to be first in the, you know, I don't need to get to that stoplight first. You know, and that's the attitude that we can take. Um, so we are called to be agents of reconciliation in touch with the Holy Spirit, and letting him activate through us a love that's healing and that will set people free. The man that thinks I owe him money, man, as I, as I started thinking about him, and actually as I prayed for him, I realized, man, this guy is so full of hurt, so full of pain. And I can see it all through his family. And 
me not paying him isn't going to change that. He needs something, he needs something way bigger than that. And, and what if this church becomes a church that lets the Holy Spirit just live out of us? Just the much more that Jesus has for us. We just, just instead of just hanging on to our sadness and our, our, our sin and our defeat, if we just say, wow, Father, you are such a good Father, I'm going to surrender to you today.